This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Former President Donald Trump faces four federal charges for attempting to overthrow the results of the 2020 presidential election. In a grand jury indictment released yesterday, special counsel Jack Smith alleges that Trump knowingly spread lies about the 2020 election in a conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruct Congress's lawful certification of electoral votes on January 6, 2021, and prevent citizens' votes from being properly counted. It is yet another unprecedented moment in the United States, and it comes as Donald Trump is running again for the presidency. Today, we'll talk about the indictment itself, what impact it might have on the 2024 election, and whether the indictment's allegations and Trump's response to them contain echoes of established authoritarian regimes around the world. Ankush Kadori is in Washington. He's an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the U.S. Justice Department. He's now a contributor to Politico and New York Magazine. Ankush, welcome back to On Point. Thank you for having me. So first of all, what stood out most to you uh, in the indictment that was released yesterday? Two things really stood out to me. Um, first, this indictment does appear to largely track even perhaps even trace the work of the January 6th committee um, and the information that was revealed in those hearings last year. Uh, The second and closely related thing is that the indictment does not charge Trump with um, planning the violence on that day, being aware of it, um, or inciting uh, an insurrection through his speech on the ellipse that day. Uh, And that's uh, a significant uh, departure from the committee, but also something that I was really looking for uh, in this indictment one way or the other, just to see how the prosecutors resolved it in the course of their investigation. Okay. So the fact that um, there's no uh, linkage to Trump to the actual violence that happened on January 6th, I mean, how do you read that significance now? Or, or no linkage in the indictment, I should say. Correct. Exactly. And that's an important point. I just It tells me that they did not obtain sufficient evidence to charge Trump with sort of inciting the insurrection, let's say, or conspiring to engage in some violence that day. It doesn't mean that there's no evidence. It does not exonerate Trump by any means. Um, it just means at the most basic level that all we can say is that the government did not obtain sufficient evidence that they believed would allow them to convict him at trial under a theory like that. Okay, and that's specifically regarding the violence on January 6th. But the indictment does contain a lot about uh, Trump's alleged activities and trying to thwart the um, the process of certifying the electoral votes that was going on in Congress on January 6th. I mean, just give me a broad overview, Ankush, if you could, of how serious you think um, the alleged violations are, because they range from conspiracy to defraud the United States to something called conspiracy against rights. I mean, are these serious charges, you think? This indictment, I I think, raises the most serious charges that are even potentially possible against a former president, right? Whatever label one applies, and I think it's important not to get hung up on the sort of the the titles on the the statutes that prosecutors use, which sometimes can be sort of um, uh, scintillating or attractive or whatever. But in this case, uh, the facts, the, the factual allegations are extremely serious. I mean, he's being charged with trying to steal the last presidential election. Like, let's just not mince words about it, right? And in a democracy, I, I find it hard to imagine a more serious affront 
uh, to Americans' rights. This is also a case that I think will be easier for people to understand. It concerns events that people were following or that were being closely, uh, you know, publicized in the media in real time. And uh, I, I just think, like, as a practical matter, if not strictly a legal matter, this is a cut above all of the other indictments that have been brought against him and I think can and should attract more attention than the others. Mm, okay. So let's talk in detail about some of the things that are in the indictments. I'm going to jump around a little bit because one of the things that stood out to me actually comes sort of in the in the middle of this roughly 40-page document when it concerns uh, Trump's activities and the pressure he was um, allegedly putting on v- former Vice President Mike Pence, um, you know, because as we recall, Trump was frequently to the public putting out tweets stating uh, falsely that Pence had the power to um, either halt the electoral count or grant uh, electoral votes to alternate slates, um, which we'll talk about in a second, of electors. But what jumped out at me was that apparently Mike Pence was taking contemporaneous notes of meetings that he had with Trump. Did we, I don't recall knowing that prior to reading the indictment yesterday. I don't recall either. And that caught my eye too. But of course, I probably have the same reaction you did, which is there's just been such a sea of information that you can never Mm -hmm. be totally sure that something's popped up or been reported at one point in time. I think I would have remembered that though. And that caught my eye too. And I do think it's new information. Okay. So then regarding um, the section of the indictment that talks about the efforts, the alleged efforts that went in uh, by Trump and his co-conspirators, which are unnamed in the indictment, regarding um, putting the pressure on Pence and then uh, trying to change the activities that happened on January 6th in Congress. I mean, how how do you you read the the evidence there? Is it convincing to you what uh, Jack Smith is putting forward here? Well, an indictment is always pretty convincing because it's it's the government's <laughs> theory, right? There hasn't been a defense. Um, but in this case, we have more insight than just what the indictment tells us, right? Because again, we had the hearings and testimony about John Eastman, who appears to be an un, unnamed co-conspirator in this, in this document. Um, and I find it persuasive. Um, I hate to prejudge these things until, you know, a defendant has the, has the opportunity to put on a defense. Um, but I thought it was outrageous. I thought the legal theory was crazy. Um, I actually spoke to John Eastman a couple of weeks ago for a story that I was working on. And um, I, I think it'll come as a surprise to him that he features so prominently in this indictment because he at least uh, told me that he was quite confident he would not be charged. Um, but look, I, I, as, as a lawyer, I mean, his conduct was outrageous. Um, and I think it has appropriately drawn the ire and attention of federal prosecutors. Okay. Now, to be clear, though, uh, the indictment contains unnamed co-conspirators, but the details in the indictment make it pretty clear who those those folks are. But they haven't been formally charged yet. Um, do you think that the special counsel is waiting on that? Um, and would it be kind of a, a big legal thicket to have to wade through if all the charges against the co-conspirators came through at the same time? Yeah, he may be waiting on it. And uh, it would be more of a thicket for sure, right? Because if you want this case to try to proceed to trial next year, and it's it's 
clear that they're going to attempt that, unclear whether they'll be able to achieve that, right? Adding defendants just complicates that. It means more defendants, more lawyers, more legal challenges, more issues you need to brief, um, efforts to separate out certain defendants and sever trials and that sort of thing. Um, and I do think it was smart for uh, the prosecutors to just charge Trump in a standalone indictment. And if at some point they charge those other folks at some point in time, which if I were them, I would assume that they will be charged, um, that can come in a separate proceeding and and I ideally wouldn't hold this one up. Mm. Okay. So I want to talk about something that happens right on the second page of the indictment where the, the, the special counsel goes out of his way to say the defendant, meaning Trump, had a right like every American to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. Essentially, the indictment acknowledges uh, Trump and all Americans' freedom of speech to say whatever they want, even if they know that it's a lie, um, and that that is not criminal. And yet throughout the rest of the indictment, much of the language is about Trump knowingly spreading lies uh, about the 2020 election. And this is something that um, Trump supporters are already honing in on, that uh, that Jack Smith here, here in their reading is actually attempting to criminalize the former president's uh, uh, freedom of speech. H how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's really silly because like, for instance, when uh, someone like, you know, calls you some telemarketer or a person from a, a you know halfway over the across the world and is trying to like scam you um that's also speech but it's illegal because it's criminal misconduct to try to defraud someone through uh even just verbal misrepresentations so at the highest level it's uh it's nonsense but um i did actually get hung up on this line myself actually when i read it um i don't think it's artfully crafted i think it's confusing um i don't think it was necessary uh, precisely because, you know, nobody is contesting that, you know, Trump can say things. But the question is, like, what those things are, what, what those things are that he's saying, who he's saying, him saying them to, and what his objective is. And so, therefore, um, you think it shouldn't have been in the in the indictment? I would not have put it put it in that way in the indictment, not so prominently or not frankly, so awkwardly worded. Um, but I don't think it's going to matter. I mean, th these these oh. sorts of arguments from Republicans and conservative supporters of Trump, they're coming no matter what. It's They, they would have said the same stuff, whether the, the, the language was in there or not. Okay. So then uh, what, what parts in the indictment do you think most clearly lay out uh, the former president and his co-conspirators' actions as rising to the level of an illegal conspiracy? Well, I think the key part to to focus on, if folks are kind of pressed for time, um, would be pages three through like six, and that is where the prosecutors allege the overarching sort of core conspiracy to allegedly interfere with the electoral certification, and also lays out these um, five different prongs. Uh, of the effort, including you know falsely getting state officials to try to change their results, putting that pressure on Mike Pence, uh, enlisting these uh, quote unquote fraudulent slates of electors, and I think when you read it all in one place uh, and read it in that compact sort of succinct, really quite clear fashion, I think they wrote this part particularly well. Um, I think it's a pretty potent uh, set of allegations and and hopefully will drive home to folks who are uh, engaging with this at home, uh, the seriousness of their underlying allegations. 
Mm. Okay. Ankush, I just have uh, less than a minute to go with you, and I've got one more question. Uh, as you know, the special counsel, Jack Smith, also has a lot of experience um, with war crimes investigations in The Hague as well. It's something actually I only recently learned about him. How much do you think that experience um, is playing into his approach um, in investigating the former president? Well, it seems to have had at least two effects. First, um, he, does, he does not appear gun-shy and, uh, or uh, unwilling to charge the most significant political leader in, in our country. Uh, and second, he moved quickly and appears to have understood that time is of the essence in a situation like this. Well, Ankush Kadori is an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Justice Department. He's now a contributing writer at Politico and contributing editor at New York Magazine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Michael Tomaski joins us. He's editor of The New Republic and editor-in-chief of the journal Democracy, also author of If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved, and The Middle Out, The Rise of Progressive Economics and a Return to Shared Prosperity. Michael Tomaski, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. And Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Professor Ben-Ghiat, welcome back to you. Thank you. First of all, let me just get a, a take from both of you on your, your reactions to yesterday's indictment um, as released by the special counsel. Uh, professor Ben-Ghiat, what, what were your first responses to it? Um, I think it's just such an important uh, move to make to uphold the rule of law because uh, America has been an outlier in the world, not in having a coup, but in uh, not uh, prosecuting Trump. And the, the fact that he's the front runner for a presidential uh, nomination with what he did is very unusual in uh, history. Okay. And Michael Tomaski, same question to you. Just quickly, I was most struck by the note on which the 45-page document ended, the words on which it ended, um, which I don't have in front of me, but was something to the effect that uh, what he subverted was the right to to have your, to vote and to have one's vote counted. Uh, I'm glad it ended on that point rhetorically, because that's really what this comes down to. Um uh, you know, we invented that right in the modern sense in this country. We didn't extend it to everybody. Ultimately, we have done that. Uh, and ever since we've 
done that full full extension. There's been forces in this country that have opposed that and that fight voting rights. Uh, that's what Donald Trump was doing from November to January 6th of 2020 and 21. So I was glad to see that uh, Jack Smith and his prosecutors had their eyes on, you know, not just the legal, but I would say the ethical or even moral prize here. Well, I do actually have the last page of the indictment here in front of me, and it's worth reading um, those last lines in full. It says uh, that, uh, again, the allegation is that, quote, Donald J. Trump did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with co-conspirators known and unknown to the grand jury to injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate one or more persons in the free exercise and enjoyment of a right and privilege secured to them by the Constitution and laws of the United States. That is, the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. So those are the actual words from the indictment. Uh, I, I want to underscore right now that this is an indictment. These are not, uh, this, is, this is, still has a legal process to go through in terms of the court and uh, Trump's right to defend himself um, strongly and fully. So this is not a uh, necessarily a, a decision by a jury. It is the beginning of a legal process, which is why these are still all uh, currently allegations um, rather than uh, than pr- proven facts, I would say. So, um, Professor Ben Ghiat, though, as you read some of the allegations in the indictment, I mean, you're the the specialist in authoritarian governments. Are some of the things alleged that Trump had done uh, familiar to you in terms of actions that other authoritarian governments have have or are taken taking now. Well, absolutely. The you know the spreading of uh, of lies, the um, attempt to what this really is 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 an attempt to re-educate through propaganda. And Trump is a highly skilled propagandist. Uh, many people underestimate him. It's easy to call him a clown. He really is one of the most important propagandists of the 21st century. And, you know, he he didn't have the advantages that other, uh, the despots he so admires had, because he, he did this. He made tens of thousands of people believe that he actually won the election and that he's the victim. Uh, he did this in a democracy. I don't know if this has ever been accomplished, this mass deception on such a scale in a democracy before. So uh, it's very important that this was singled out, the, the, the knowingly, you know, perpetrating these lies. The other thing I'd say is the end game of this uh, is obviously to, was to keep him in power illegally. That's the coup part. But he'd been trying since 2016 relentlessly through propaganda to his own propaganda and his leader cult to turn Americans off the idea of elections altogether. That's the end game. Mm-hmm. And Tommy Tuberville, his, one of his lackeys, came out and said that, that, oh, we don't really need elections anymore. That the idea that elections are corrupt, they're not really necessary because I alone can fix it. That's, mm. that's something that is there. So that's also why, as Michael said, the, it, you know, ending this on the right to vote uh, they're way beyond this. They're like, we're going to convince, you know, the public that we elections aren't even necessary because they're just corrupt. And that's also why Trump relentlessly praises models of leadership like the most murderous dictators around, Putin and Xi. He says they're top of the line people at the top of their game. We can laugh at that, but this is re-education of Americans to want 
democracy, sorry, to want autocracy. Mm. Michael Tomaski, what do you think about that? Well, I naturally agree with it. And, um, and I think, first of all, that, you know, he's running uh, to to reinstate that or to impose that in a way he wasn't able to impose it in his first term. Uh, he's also running to stay out of prison. Will Hurd was right when he said that the other day. He's a, a, a congressional or a presidential candidate in the Republican side. Uh, so he's running for those two reasons. But it's it's a very frightening thought that if he gets in, uh, he will uh, take certain steps that he and his people have already announced they'll take. Um, for example, in a recent and prominent New York Times story, uh, to curtail democracy. Um, you know, the Republican Party has, in my view, been headed in this direction uh, for quite some time. Uh, they didn't have anybody to say the quiet part out loud until Trump came along. Um, but I think you can trace the roots of this in the GOP back to Newt Gingrich and and certainly uh, the avowedly right-wing media, uh, including prominently Rupert Murdoch and uh, Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, uh, chipped away at democratic mm-hmm. norms and institutions. You know, celebrating, for example, Bush v. Gore, a decision that uh, the five justices who agreed to it even said admitted that it was not standing precedent and shouldn't be standing precedent uh, to install uh, a a presidential candidate who got the minority of the popular vote. Um, I could go on uh, with more of that history, but, you know, it, it, my point is that Trump didn't just happen in a vacuum and this all doesn't spring from Donald Trump's head. A lot of it does. A lot of it does to be sure. Uh, but there are historical antecedents there that produced him and that made that party want to nominate a guy like that in the first place. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, for the remainder of this segment, I do want to explore a little bit more of the how we got here, because then it helps us have a more informed conversation of where we as, an, as a country might go next. But but to that point, I mean, you mentioned um, some of the things that uh, Trump and uh, and his campaign have been you know, talking about quite openly regarding what they would do uh, with the presidency if Trump wins again in 2024. So I want to spend a little bit more time on that, because as we've been talking about, the federal grand jury indictment contains those 45 pages of allegations of how Trump used the power of the presidency, allegedly, to overturn the results in an attempt to overturn the results in the 2020 election. So should he win in 2024, Trump is it, and his allies really are crafting a plan to make the presidency even more powerful by smashing legal and political norms, refashioning the federal government. He's proposing stripping federal agencies of their independence, purging the civil service of those disloyal to him, even subverting Congress's power of the purse. So we talked with Isaac Arnsdorf, a national political reporter covering Donald Trump for The Washington Post. And he says that this isn't just Trump speaking off the cuff, like you said, Michael, it's not just all sort of springing forth from Trump's head. It's a $22 million effort crafted in concert with one of the most influential conservative think tanks in Washington. The Heritage Foundation and a cluster of groups under the umbrella of the Conservative Partnership Institute, probably most prominently the Center for Renewing America, which is led by Russ Vogt, who was Trump's head of the Office of Management and Budget 
and is kind of uh, taken on the role of like a White House chief of staff in exile. Now, the Heritage Foundation, that conservative think tank, has drifted quite far from its original Reaganite philosophy of deregulation, lower taxes, and keeping the federal government out of people's lives. Reagan's idea was that government is the problem. And Trump is up there saying not only government is the solution, but basically I, meaning Trump, as the government am the solution. So he's proposing knocking down any laws and norms that establish independence among different arms of the executive branch from direct presidential and White House control. So one example of that, Trump wants to subvert a law called the Impoundment Act. That law states that the president must approve spending on government programs authorized by Congress. He would just basically refuse to spend money that Congress has appropriated that he doesn't feel like spending on things he doesn't support. There's a law against that. He's taking the view that that law is unconstitutional, so he's just going to ignore it. And that, again, is really emblematic of this idea that all of the power of the government is going to be vested in him. Now, wresting financial control from Congress, purging the civil service, bringing federal agencies to heel. Many political scientists see these as hallmarks of authoritarian governments. So how do Trump's conservative allies justify the plan? Establishment conservatives are not establishment conservatives anymore. The What you might say that more like orthodox conservative ideology, a lot of those people have left the party or are strangers in their own party. And with the evolution of institutions like heritage is that that Trump's articulation of the party has swallowed them up too. They are getting more comfortable with the idea of trying to use government power to influence society toward the right rather than getting the government out of civil society. That was Isaac Arnsdorf, national political reporter covering Donald Trump for The Washington Post. He's also author of the forthcoming book, Finish What We Started, The MAGA Movement's Ground War to End Democracy. And Isaac's been reporting for The Washington Post on uh, this plan called Project 2025. Donald Trump calls it Agenda 47. Uh, And as noted earlier, a lot of the reporting has also come out of The New York Times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Now, Michael Tomaski, let me turn back to you because another way of describing what this plan is um, that the Heritage Foundation and Trump are talking about is sort of a, a maximalist view of the unitary executive theory, as it's sort of called, right, in, in wonky circles. But can you, can you tell me a little bit more of how, what the progression was in, amongst conservative thinkers in the Republican Party that viewed the, that the executive branch should be outright the most powerful branch in the federal government? That dates back to Nixon. Um, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the famous historian, wrote a book during the Nixon presidency called The Imperial Presidency. And, and uh, it had mostly to do with Nixon's uh, the way Nixon exercised foreign policy as opposed to domestic policy, although there were domestic aspects to it. Um, uh, then it was augmented under uh, Bush Jr. Uh, during the Iraq War when he uh, and his administration uh, arrogated to themselves certain powers that that uh, had theretofore been in the hands of Congress. 
so it's grown and grown. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as I said before, they've chipped away and chipped away uh, over the last, um, well, I guess I'm saying half a century now. Uh, but Trump is uh, a, a different order of magnitude. You know, there's a phrase from political science called competitive authoritarianism. Coined by two uh, political scientists, Stephen Levitsky and Lucan Wei, they were studying in the 1990s uh, countries in the developing world and countries in the former Eastern Bloc uh, and trying to put them in category as, are you a democracy or are you authoritarian? And as they sifted through the data, they came to see that uh, a lot of countries weren't exactly either. They were a combination. So they came up with the name Competitive Authoritarian State which has some of the look and trappings uh, of a democracy. It might have a free press. It might have a somewhat independent judiciary. But essentially, the game is rigged for one party over the other. So they have elections, but one party always happens to win them. That's what the Republican Party wants. That's what Donald Trump wants. Uh, Professor Ben Giat, you know, listening to what Michael was just saying, it reminded me of a show we did a while ago about Viktor Orban in Hungary. And a guest on that show said, you know, Hungary looks like a democracy, but only if you squint really, really hard, right? So is that is that the same sort of we would have to squint really hard if uh, to see American democracy if the plans for, you know, Agenda 47, as Trump calls it, would actually come to fruition here? Absolutely. And the more uh, recent term for uh, competitive authoritarianism, uh, which I don't use, is electoral autocracy. And that is what uh, Michael described when uh, you still maintain some, you maintain some opposition, you don't shut down elections. Today, uh, autocrats often come to power through elections, and then they have to game the system to stay there. And we've seen this around the world recently. Now, Orban has his propaganda phrase, illiberal democracy, that he uses. And that's largely to like, you know, he's in the EU, he still gets funds uh, from the EU. And so that's like kind of uh, whitewashing everybody uh, that there is some kind of democracy there, even though the elections are no longer free or fair. (laughs) So, so... You know, in Turkey, for example, um, what Erdogan did, he was very vulnerable uh, before these last presidential elections. And so he put a jail sentence over the only man who could have beaten him, the current mayor of Istanbul, uh, so that that person could not be uh, the opposition candidate. (laughs) And so he took him out of the running. That's what we mean by gaming the competition, as well as domesticating the media, using threat. There's a million tools that these people have, uh, all the while saying, as Erdogan does, oh, no, we're not a you know, dictatorship. We Here we have voting, but it's not free or fair. Right. Well, uh, Michael, I know I've just got you for about 30 seconds more, but uh, in fact, I would say Donald Trump's supporters are saying that uh, the fact of these indictments coming down uh, against him is Joe Biden and the Biden Justice Department actually behaving in a way that's using the, the power of law enforcement to, uh, to sideline political opponents. I mean, what's your response to that? Well, uh, fascists, if you don't mind me using that word, always accuse their opponents of doing that which they are doing. Uh, it throws people off the scent. It confuses people. And, you know, uh, some percentage of the population is going to buy it. 35, 36, 37 in this case. And I would just leave people with this thought. Uh, amplifying Actually, Michael, I'm, I'm going to let you pick up that thought in a moment. This is on point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And Michael Tomaski, for, forgive me for having to cut you off earlier. The clock is a very unforgiving force in the life of a, a radio host here. But I wanted to let you finish your thought and have one actually final question for you after that. So you were going to say to listeners that... Yeah, I'll just say quickly, you know, take this seriously. You know, countries can lose democracy. It's happened in a lot of places. You know, uh, Argentina lost its democracy for a time. Chile lost its for a time. Hungary was a democracy after the Cold War for a number of years. So uh, this is real. Now, none of those countries have the traditions with the durability of ours, 247 years. But, you know, they can be... They can be defeated, and and we run a very serious risk of that happening if Trump wins. Well, so that brings me to my final question for you, Michael, which is, so we keep talking about Trump, Trump, Trump himself, right? Because obviously he is the, he's the gravitational force around which um, all this activity and attention is is orbiting. But what really strikes me now is that it's not just Trump and his, um, you know, his handpicked staffers or campaign managers or even his political allies who are elected officials with the 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 sort of full-throated uh, encouragement from places like the Heritage Foundation where uh, Fox News has always been there but the the Heritage Foundation we're also now talking about he, that he's getting more overt institutional support um from for his authoritarian ambitions uh, from places that we maybe hadn't heard from as uh, as clearly before. What do you make of that? Well, I'd say that there are three uh, elements to the uh, current MAGA Republican Trump coalition. Uh, there's um, the uh, elites of the party who seem for the most part comfortable with it. There's the base, which loves it. And there's the media. And they've built their own media that uh, in many ways has more power than the mainstream media these days. And they seem to be all in too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I worry frequently that even when Trump has gone from the scene, uh, the Republican party is not going to walk back from this cliff. There's a chance, I guess, that some leader could come along who can inspire people back in a more mainstream direction, but I, I would put that at less than 50%. Mm. Michael Tomaski, editor of The New Republic and editor-in-chief of the journal Democracy, author of The Middle Out, The Rise of Progressive Economics and a Return to Shared Prosperity, and If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved. Thank you for joining us today, Michael. Thank you. Pleasure. Professor Ben-Ghiat, uh, I want to spend the rest of the program talking about um, 
what Michael said, that it has happened elsewhere, and therefore it could happen here as well. So allow me to just provide a little bit more um, detail of one of the examples that has been mentioned already, and that is in Turkey. So Gonul Tol is director of the Turkey program at the Middle East Institute and author of Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria. And she's watched closely how Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, came into office through the normal processes of a democracy, elections, and then how he amassed more and more power into his own hands. Erdogan's uh, centralization of power in his own hands, it didn't happen in one day. In the 20 years he's been in power, he has taken incremental steps. And there was no Rubicon, really. When he first came to power in 2002, he was in a weak position. Although he had just captured a little more than 30% of the popular vote, he knew that that was just the beginning. He knew that the secular establishment, particularly the military, was still calling the shots. So that's why he had to be very cautious. Now, key to Erdogan's ambitions winning over citizens and politicians of different stripes to help him undermine traditional centers of power in Turkey, like the country's military. So he pitched himself as the guy who was going to fix Turkey's broken democracy, and that meant sidelining the secularist military. And he framed that goal as part of his democratic agenda. And that's how he was able to put together a coalition of liberals, for instance. His support went way beyond the narrow Islamic space. He managed to appeal to the country's Turks, Kurds, conservatives, progressives, even social democrats. And I think that was a, a brilliant idea. Thereafter, Erdogan seated supporters in the judiciary and silenced critics outside of government. He managed to capture the judiciary and got rid of the secularists in the judiciary and staffed Turkish judiciary with supporters. And later on, he took over the business community in the country because many of them owned media outlets. And Erdogan launched several investigations into these business owners who had been critical of Erdogan. So he managed to sideline them by using tax evasion cases, for instance. And so that's why by the time he won elections in 2011, All institutions and social levers of power had come under his control. And critically for this conversation, Erdogan didn't just take power. It was also given to him by business interests who grew even wealthier under Erdogan's brand of crony capitalism. Shortly after coming to power, he surrounded himself with loyal businessmen. So right now in the country, there are a handful of businessmen who receive an unprecedented number of public tenders and who have become really wealthy in the last 20 years under Erdogan's rule. And it's actions like that that have cemented Erdogan's power, not just inside Turkish government, but outside it as well. And it's also won him the stalwart support of many of Turkey's elite. It's a heaven. There are no accountability whatsoever. There's no rule of law. One man calls the shots, and if you're close to that man, Turkey is a great place to be living in. So from those people's point of view, Erdogan's legacy is one of heroism. 
So that's Gonal Tol, director of the Turkey program at the Middle East Institute and author of Erdogan's War, A Strong Man's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Professor Ruth Ben-Giyat, uh, what are the similarities and differences that you think um, uh, lie between the Turkish example that we just raised and what you're seeing happening in the United States? Yeah, so um, what Gonal was uh, describing very well is... Um, with the crony capitalism, is a concept called authoritarian bargains. And in my book, Strong Men, I go over 100 years of these. These are things that all uh, dictators do or want to be dictators. Uh, you have to make, early on, you have to make um, deals with uh, important uh, elites. And it's not just the ones that uh, Michael mentioned, where you must have, of course, your party You've got to have your fanatic grassroots base. You've got to have the media. You also need religion. That's been mm. very important. And um, and once these people sign on, as well as financial people, of course, the business elites, once they sign on, <clears throat> it's very difficult to have these authoritarian deals break. You need some kind of major crisis. Um, we see in, in Israel there's a crisis now with Netanyahu, and so he's seeing elites turn against him, even the military and security establishment. Uh, but so we've seen in the States, so Trump had uh, Christian evangelicals, Orthodox Jews who are saying he was put there by the will of God. He had all of the, you know, the billionaires, the conservative elites, who are, I don't call conservative anymore, they're far right. He had all this constellation of people, the Federalist Society, Heritage Foundation, and you really can't think of it as a constellation. You could map it like that with him in the center. And he's delivered for many of these people, and they know it. And so when he says this is the final battle, they're all in it because this is their moment. This is as close as they're ever going to come to actually being able to realize uh, the kind, the model of autocratic power that they have either wanted for a long time, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> either wanted for a long time or have been converted to see what benefits they can draw from it. Mm, okay, because I, I think you've said uh, previously that uh, the autocratic playbook, if I can call it that, it, it, it kind of operates on what would seem to be two opposing truths. That one, the, the autocrat says, well, I alone can fix things. I mean, that's literally what Donald Trump has said in the past. And um, and he's saying now, he's, the quotes are along the lines of he, he's calling himself the, the vengeance for... Uh, for aggrieved Americans. So there's this very self-centered aspect of the authoritarian's personality, but you're saying that, that that can't rise to power on its own, right? That it needs the complicity of all these other groups. It needs that. <clears throat> it needs also another similarity is uh, authoritarians promise a utopian future that everything's going to mm. be better. They think big. Er Erdogan has these huge infrastructure projects Trump was all about infrastructure, never really happened, but that we're talking about propaganda. But very important is they appeal to nostalgia. They get all these malcontents who think, yeah, things used to be better before blacks had so much power or in, in the case of Turkey, other things. So, so all of them want to revive some form of the past. So Erdogan's, there's this obsession with the, the, the power and grandeur of the Ottoman Empire. And look at Putin, mm. the idea of the Russian, imperial Russia, 
And so Trump had, when, when Trump came out with his slogan, <laughs> it's, it's not make America great, it's make America great again. I almost fell mm. off my chair because this is what I've been studying for so long. This was Mussolini with the Roman Empire. You know, Hitler had a kind of Aryan uh, fantasy civilization. So, so all of these people, do, they all have the same playbook, and Trump has followed it to a T, which is why he's in my book, in the context of 100 years of these things. Erdogan is in it, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and then... So even if that initial vision doesn't um, sort of ring true with with everybody, I, I think you've also written about how um, when an authoritarian comes into power, one of the initial things that that he does is actually begin with real reforms that might have greater appeal to people than those in his immediate coalition, if I can put it that way. Is that right? Um. Well, this is usually they don't get to power unless they have a very broad, um, broad based swath of different interested parties. Excuse me. Um, And one of the hallmarks of these guys is that they they get these very eclectic constituencies. You have gangsters, you have housewives. And that's because this type of leader will be anything that each uh, constituency needs him to be. They have no morals. They have no principles. They only want powers. They promise each group whatever they think that group wants. And that's why people fall for them and think, oh, he's speaking to me in a way no one's ever spoken to me. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the secrets of their success. Who would have predicted that the most impious person you could think of, Donald Trump, who's uniquely criminal, would have such support from evangelical Christians, Orthodox Jews, all of these kind of, you know, uh, uh, kind of establishment conservatives. They've all fallen under his spell, meaning they see what they can get out of him. Mm, mm. So Donald Trump did not win the 2020 election. Um, but as the indictment that was released yesterday outlines, he alleged, you know, he's there seems to be plenty of evidence that he fought tooth and nail to remain in power. Uh, but nevertheless, he is running. He's running now again for the 2024 race. Are there examples elsewhere? I think maybe Viktor Orban does spring to mind, but of how authoritarians sort of um, have their first first time at bat, but then when they come back again. Um, they win and uh, and can fulfill the the authoritarian vision that uh, that they've put out there. Yeah, there's two parts to this. First is, uh, sadly and scarily, whenever they come back, they're full of vengeance and they're five times more extremist. And so if Trump gets back into the White House, he, he's there's a reason he's talking about retribution, the avenging this and that and purging, uh, you know, civil service. He's got people talking about impeaching Trump, uh, sorry, impeaching Biden. So there's that dynamic. But there's something larger. It's, it's our turn in America to go through uh, this uh, idea that you know, most politicians, if they have, if they're under investigation or they've got indictments, they don't want to run for office because you're under the spotlight. There's opposition research, but authoritarians are not most people. And so 
you know, this is Trump's third time running. Uh, now he has indictments, but he ran in 2016. He was under investigation for fraud for Trump University. Berlusconi ran three times for office uh, with massive corruption trials and indictments. By the way, by the time uh, Berlusconi was forced out of office, he had over two dozen indictments and he had never been to mm. prison. Uh, Putin ran for the first time uh, while under investigation and Netanyahu, now we're seeing the drama in Israel where he uh, is, you know, indicted for bribery and other things and he's trying to get back, he, he, he got back and he's immediately trying to shut down uh, judicial independence. So the reason they do this is that the purpose of authoritarianism is to allow uh, the leader to commit crime with impunity so that they feel safe. And so all of this, uh, Trump 2025, uh, the whole plan, uh, which has been laid out for us with the help of the Heritage Foundation, purging the civil service, uh, when uh, the former Trump's former um, head of the Office of Man Management and Budget says, quote, we're looking for pockets of independence in the government to seize them. That is a th what's called autocratic capture. That's what uh, Tonal described that Erdogan already did. So you must, uh, you must purge the civil service and institutions of any non-loyalists. And once you've done that, uh, and if you can fix the system, uh, then you can uh, commit as many crimes as you want and you're untouchable. Being untouchable is the dream of authoritarians like Trump. Well, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Thank you so much for coming back to the show, Professor Ben-Ghiat. Always a pleasure. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> <laughs> 